the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The views and opinions expressed by Rob Black and his guests are not necessarily those of the Wall Street Business Network, this station, its management, owners, or advertisers, and should not be construed as legal, tax, or investment advice. Always consult with the appropriate advisor before making any investment or financial planning decision. Insightful. Informative. Irreverent. We're ready. The Wall Street Business Network presents Rob Black and Your Money, your source for breaking news, market updates, and successful investment strategies for the 21st century. Sounds like a great program. Getting you to retirement in today's market. So let's get on with the show. Taxes, family finances, insurance, the economy, technology, media, and entertainment. Rob is talking about it with you at 800 516 So call in. We'll chat and uh, have some fun. Now, to start your day with the latest news and market commentary, here's Rob Black on the Wall Street Business Network. Welcome in. Rob Black and your money. I'm Rob Black talking all things financial money, investing, and more. Part of investing is sometimes following the trends. And one of the trends that I've seen in the last... 20 years is beer's getting a lot better, but before we get there, keep in mind beer's been being made since 4300 BC, as far as I can tell. It's been made around the world, not just the Germans own this business, but around the world. And something that I think is kind of native to the United States is that craft beering. Um, I could be wrong on that, and I've brought in some experts to, to help me and prove me right or prove me wrong. Sean O'Sullivan and Nico Frisha. Hey, good did morning. I, did I get Freesha correctly? Uh, Freesha. Freesha. Pretty good, yeah. I'll probably mispronounce it. That's okay. Um, and if I say 21st century, slap me, because we're talking 21st <laughs> Amendment. Just get that 21st in there, Rob. That's all that matters. So many, many years ago, I was a young man and uh, went out on a date, and she ordered me a beer, and it was the first beer that I had had, and it was an Irish red beer, a Killian's Irish red or something like that, and I've been drinking beer since. Um, first beer was a little tough on the palate. Second beer got better and better and better. Um, so I'm a big fan of beer, but because I started with a good beer, I think it ruined me. I never did the Coors. I never did the Miller Lights. And I think anyone my age kind of looks at those beers as their dad's beers. Is that a correct statement? Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, my first beer was Ham's in a can. I think it was 17. I'm uh, just kidding, Mom. Uh, and, yeah, it was that was it. That was my entree. And then, you know, first craft beer was in Los Angeles years ago where I had uh, – I remember having uh, Anchor's uh, uh, Steam Beer yeah. uh, and also Sierra Nevada Pale Ale. Those were like the stalwarts now. What's interesting about your father's beer now is that my, you know, my son's father's beer is craft beer. So this is a whole new generation that's happening right now of drinking great craft beer. That's as their first beer. So let's talk a little bit about this. Um, and again, I think we stick with the father analogy for like one more second. But my dad was into Coors. Um, I, I wouldn't wash my car with Coors. It's, it's that week uh, <laughs> is the joke, so to speak. Um, but the craft brewing thing, it's, it's Pacific Northwest owns some of it. Boston Beer, Sam Adams owns some of it. Um, it's very, very regional. But I, I think it, it has a, a great feel to it. And 21st Amendment certainly stepping up to the plate with their own stake in the territory. Well, California really is the birthplace of craft beer. Anchor, uh, bought by Fritz Maytag back in 1965 and sort of single-handedly revitalized these old English styles that hadn't been brewed for hundreds of years really anywhere. Um, and also the only American indigenous style at that time, which is steam beer, which Anchor is their flagship beer. Uh, and because of what Fritz Maytag did with Anchor, he really paved the way for um, guys like Jack McAuliffe that opened up New Albion and up in Sonoma County in the late 70s. And the, uh, his assistant went on to open up Mendocino Brewing. And then uh, Ken Grossman started Sierra Nevada right on the heels of that. So all of this sort of movement really started in Northern California. It was ground zero. I think that's what actually draw, drew Sean and I to, to the Bay Area in the first place because we were – both living in L.A. and wanted to be part of this craft beer scene in the early 90s because L.A. was like a beer wasteland, and uh, San Francisco was sort of... You it's know, where it was happening. I mean, there was like, you know, the Mecca. first, the first uh, you know, brew pubs, and the, the law changed in 1985, allowing for brew pubs were started here. Buffalo Bills and Triple Rock Brewery were 
in Berkeley where I cut my teeth brewing beer. Uh, so, yeah, I think it was like, uh, I mean, we all come to San Francisco to find our fortune in a lot of ways. I mean, it's been going on since the gold rush and, you know, dot coms and the music, of course. And now here, you know, the craft beer industry really, like Nico said, is sort of, you know, the, the, the start, the Eden of, uh, of the whole movement. One of the things that's interesting is because I'm an investor, I've always said, you know, Anheuser-Busch is going to be a great investment because people will be drinking crappy beer for the rest of our lives. But now they're starting to catch on and they're starting to buy you know, I think Lagunitas, just someone picked up a big stake in them. Heineken. Um, Ballast Point, I think someone picked up a big stake in them. And you're talking like $500 million to a billion-dollar valuation. Silly, silly money. Yes. Silly money for two guys who start brewing beer in a garage? I mean, basement. For me, it was the basement. It was okay. the basement of my apartment in San Francisco. For me, it was my back house in West Los Angeles. <laughs> and as I was preparing for this last night, it, it, it dawned on me, like, HP started with two guys in a garage. And... The craft brewing story, it's typically, it's in a basement, it's in a garage, it's in, um, it's two guys typically um, yep. who are doing a hobby, um, and then they take their beers to like a state fair or something, they win a couple awards and then it gets bigger and bigger. Well, you know, back when Sean and I started, I, I started homebrewing around 1990, Sean, you know, was homebrewing, we were both, uh, I brewed in my kitchen basement, as Sean said, it's kind of like uh, you mentioned Steve Jobs started in a garage and HP and uh, Ken Grossman from Sierra Nevada owned a bike shop and kind of started in the bike shop. And back then it was not really, I mean, it was a business, but it was a passion. It was much more of a follow your dream and do something you love to do and, and have fun with it and make something that other people like. And now the business has grown so much in the last just five years alone, exploded uh, double digit growth every year. We're up to like 18% annual growth as an industry right now. And so now you're seeing people get into it because they want to uh, make money. They want to flip it maybe in some instances. I mean, there's still people that are passionate about beer that are home brewers, but it's really evolved a lot in the last 20 years. Yeah, it's like when you – anytime the business community sees growth and, you know, uh, people are purchasing the beer, uh, there is an interest that happens. And so you're seeing those huge acquisitions that are happening. I mean, Heineken buying, you know – 50% interest in Lagunitas for $500 million, uh, Ballast Point being purchased by Constellation Brands, which is your Corona uh, brewery, for a billion dollars. That's a B, folks. Uh, I mean, there is some serious dollars at play here. I mean, is there a bubble going on right now with these purchases? Maybe. I mean, Anheuser-Busch, like you said, they, uh, they're seeing uh, you know, their, their big brand, Budweiser, drop off, so they're trying to gobble up these smaller breweries. They've purchased small craft breweries like Elysian up in Seattle and Ten Barrel up in, uh, in, in Bend, Oregon. So uh, there's, uh, this is a hot, uh, a hot commodity right now in the business world. Yeah, and I, I want to use bubble because, like you said, the revenue is there. Um, and I'm willing to pay $10 for a six-pack, whereas, you know, I'm not going to pay $6 for a six-pack of Miller. I'm just not going to do it. I'm, I'm going to pay a premium for a premium. So you're probably not going to buy Miller anyway. <laughs> well, that's fair enough. Um, well, well, the irony is that the, the category itself is not growing. Beer in America is not growing as a category. Okay. It's actually, over the last 10 years, it's, it's been shrinking a little bit. It's about flat now. But what's happening is share is shifting. The big brewers are losing millions of barrels of share every year, and they're losing it largely to craft and imports. And uh, if you look at a graph of other consumer packaged goods against beer, in those categories, there's a lot of players. The, the playing field is more leveled out. There's And essentially in beer, you've got right now two major dominant companies. You've got AB InBev and you've got Miller Coors right. in America that still accounts for 85% of all the beer sold in this country. And AB InBev is trying to buy Miller Coors. Uh, they will be divested of their Coors holdings in America, so it doesn't really change the landscape. But largely, the entire beer world will be owned by one company. And so when these uh, strategic partners are buying craft breweries, they're essentially trying to get in on the shift in share that's going on because they believe that the, that, that share will be leveled out over time. Many years ago, um, as a guy talking stocks on radio, one of the things I noticed was the grocery store is basically controlled by about eight companies. If you look at Pepsi, they're not just Pepsi. They're water, they're orange juice. They're a lot of shelf space, candy treats, things like that, Doritos. Um, is that what the problem is for the craft brew companies to get into the shelf space? Is that what Miller, is that what Ambev has that the craft beers guys can't get into, the shelf space and the relationships? 
Well, shelf space is limited. You know, beer is largely almost 100% sold in the cold shelf area of a yep. supermarket. If you go to a, go to the wine section, there may be four rows of wine, but it's all dry. In other words, it's on the warm shelf. You don't see that in beer. And so there's a limited amount of refrigerated space, and that's largely controlled by the big brewers who actually do the sets in the supermarkets and position all the brands on the shelf. So the success is pretty impressive. You're going up against giants is what I'm trying to say. Well, the margin is there, and the supermarkets see it, and the distributors see it, and they want to capture some of that. Thanks very much. I'm speaking with Sean and Nico from 21st Amendment. We're going to be talking about a holiday party coming up and much, much more. I'm Rob Black. I go to the bar. I read my coat. I caught a bartender. I said, look, man, come down here. You got down there. So what you want? I want bourbon. You're listening to Black and Your Money on AM 1220 KDOW. I'm Rob Black talking beer today. 21st Amendment Brewers, the founders of the company, are sitting in with me, Sean and Nico. And uh, they've got a big event coming up tomorrow. Yes. What's this all about? This is the 82nd anniversary of the repeal of Prohibition, which was the passage of the 21st Amendment. It's sort of our own little individual national holiday. So every year we've been doing a big party at our pub in San Francisco. We uh, we all dress up. Sean and I put on these really ugly yellow zoot suits from the uh, <laughs> 1930s. And we have We Want Beer signs, and um, we do a march around the neighborhood. This year we've moved it to San Leandro, which is our new production brewery. Um, much bigger space, uh, big outdoor area. We're going to have a uh, casino for charity. It's going to benefit the Davis Street Family Resources Foundation. Uh, we have a seven-piece Dixieland jazz band. We have a kids zone. We have a 21A grill. We have food truck. We have a cigar lounge. Uh, just great beer, great food, fun, music all day long. It's free to get in and uh, come on down and see us. There's a BART shuttle. Free BART shuttle from San Leandro BART. And our neighbor, Cleophus Queely Brewery, funny name, but great little small brewery about a mile from us in San Leandro, is having their one-year anniversary party as well tomorrow. So we have a shuttle that picks up uh, people at the San Leandro BART, takes you to 21st Amendment, takes you over to Cleophus Queely and back to the BART. So you can make a great afternoon, evening of it, and uh, great fun for the whole family. I'm not going to try to pronounce that name, Cleophus Queely. It took Sean and I six months each. It did. I couldn't say it for a long time, but now it just rolls off my tongue. And founded by a couple of Google guys. Yeah, exactly. It was Dan and Peter, and they're doing some great, you know, elegant beers down there. Um, small little operation. They barrel-aged, and they do Belgian-style beers, and uh, it's, uh, it's, it's a great spot. What you may not know, because you're in the industry, from outside the industry, it's great. You talk about your competitors, and you smile, and... They're competitors, but it's a big market. But it seems like a lot of brewers and founders, they endorse and, and support each other. Um, and, like, I think that's a great thing. Yeah, it's like it's, a, it's the analogy of rising tides lift all boats or whatever it is. Um, and, and that's exactly what happened. The first time I met Dan and Peter at Cleophus Queely, I mean, I went to their tasting room, and they were having they were fixing their brew kettle, and they needed help loading it up into a, uh, into a U-Haul truck to get it repaired. And I just went over there and helped them out, and that's a, indicative of the entire industry. It's a real collaborative effort. Uh, you know, anytime I need an ingredient or any brewer needs an ingredient or technology or, you know, help with the process, everybody extends a hand. I mean, it's uh, uh, we're kind of all in this together. We always see like we're battling like, you know, the big, you know, Bud Coors Miller beers out there and trying to, you know, bring people to our side. And uh, it's uh, it's a it's a it's a great experience. I could attest that you've got some damn tasty beers. Just Thank throw, you. throwing Thank it you. out there. And they're fresh and it's, it's so much better than uh, buying stuff from well, it's really kind of an extension of the DIY experience that's happening right now in America where people are more and more concerned with what they're putting in their mouth. I mean, it's the kind of a, the farmer's market experience with craft beer. Uh, you want People want to know who the suppliers are. They want to be in touch with them, and that's what happens with beer. People know Nico and I. You know, they see us on the street. They see us in our bar, of course, uh, in our brewery, and uh, it, it, the, anytime you can have a connection like that, um, I think that's important for everybody involved. You feel better about what you're doing. You feel like you're more in touch with, with what you're consuming. It's a bit of a phenomenon, but I would highly recommend buying someone a beer-making kit for Christmas. Yeah, um, bring that's out how the, we got started. Bring out the inner scientist <laughs> and some guys. I, I have an uncle who does it in Santa Cruz, um, just south of Santa Cruz. And, uh, you know, he does home brewing. And every Thanksgiving, every Christmas, he brings a bottle of something he brewed and, it's a it's an icebreaker. Here we've got three guys who all love craft beers, and 
that's our Christmas presents to each other. Have you tried this? There's that have you tried angle. Um, I've pulled up a list of the top 25 beers in the nation right now. And uh, one of them that comes up is, who is it? Um, Russian River. Yes. What a phenomenon. And again, this is why we're talking about this, because this is, this is to me like talking sports. Yeah, well, Vinny Chalerzo and Natalie, who started Russian River Brewing Company, I mean, uh, he's, uh, IPAs are huge. India Pale yeah. Ales, which is a bitter, hoppier version of Pale Ale, uh, are, he, he essentially started the style of the double IPA. Uh, which is, of course, a more intense version of a regular India Pale Ale. And so with his Pliny the Elder, and it's just been a phenomenon. And they they, can, they limit their production up there in Santa Rosa. They, it's not interested in getting any bigger than he is. They re- really rely upon the freshness aspect. So you'll you'll see beer geeks purchasing a bottle of Pliny the Elder at you know, various stores, and they'll post on you know social media about the freshness state. And uh and he's also great. He does a great sour beers and barrel-aged beers. Um, with his, you know, his Shun series, which is Supplication, and uh, all these other beers. Um, and he's just a kind of embodies kind of the craft movement in a lot of ways. If there's one thing though that angers me is it's something you just said. He's not interested in expanding. Mm-hmm. You, you've been to Santa Rosa. Santa yes. Rosa. Santa Rosa's good, but it's not happening like San Francisco. On a on a Friday morning or a Saturday morning or a Sunday morning. If it opens at 11, there's a line at 9.45, 40, yep. 40 to 60 people deep. And I'm like, the it, it's, I don't want to say, and I'm like, um, <laughs> it's a good problem to have, but help us out, guy. I can't get his beer. because. And, and that's the one thing he gets, like, you know, nailed for. But his okay. attitude is like, well, what do you want me to do? I mean, I, I don't want to become a larger brewery. He is actually expanding his capacity, so it is going to get a little bit bigger. But, for instance, they do a release every year of Pliny the Younger, which is their triple IPA. So it's like it goes to 11. And it happens every February. And there is uh, people are camping out, like you said, outside of their Santa Rosa pub there around the block waiting just to get a pint of it, not a bottle, not a growler fill. You go in there, you have an opportunity, I think, to have two or three beers, and you have to get out. Uh, so it's really an example of like kind of the how we are such geeks about this stuff, and uh, people really get into it and want to be part of it. And I think, <clears throat> excuse me, they said that last year, the year before, that the impact on the economy, the uh, the economy of San, Santa Rosa, just over that weekend was like two million dollars, just from people coming in and staying in hotels and eating out, and it's insane. And that happens all over the country. You now you've got the Hunapu Day down at Cigar City in Tampa Bay. Uh, you got the founders, I uh, think, Breakfast Stout Day, and um, it's uh, Three Floyds in Indiana. I mean, all over the country, they do these special release days. And people line up and want it. They just they want it. They trade it. There's a huge, there's a whole community out there of beer trading that goes on, um, collecting people are and trading. Passionate about yeah, people are pa- passionate. Passion enthusiasts. People are starting to set up, like you said, Santa Rosa's destination for beer enthusiasts, and there's nothing going on in Santa Rosa minus Russian River, in my opinion, <laughs> as a guy who has some family up there. Um, it's one of the best things that's happened there downtown, for sure. Um, let's talk a little bit more about the charitable aspect. Also, I've noticed that anyone who brews seems to have a night or a regular occasion where they're giving away profits to local schools, maybe a fireman who passed away. What's up with the... It's good PR, and it certainly makes for a good community, but... I don't see a lot of industries doing this, and certainly well, not restaurants. It's really very much linked to what Sean was talking about earlier, which is the, the local community-based aspect of craft beer. I mean, there's over 4,000 breweries in America today, and 95% of them are small, little local places. And they want to make beer that's you know that reflects their, their place and uh, maybe the ingredients of that place but certainly the brewers and the people in the community, and they want to support that community. I think there was a statistic that just came out by the Brewers Association, which is our national trade association, that in uh, 2014, craft brewers contributed something like $71 million to uh, local charities. And so, you know, we're doing uh, part of the proceeds tomorrow for our event, Go to Charity, and uh, we try to support all kinds of local organizations. And the great thing is that we can donate beer and we can donate space, and people love beer. And space. And space. So big <laughs> events like tomorrow, together. celebrating Prohibition Day. Noon to 6 tomorrow, San Leandro, 21st Amendment Brewery. Um, I'm going to try to make it out. That should be a good event. We're going to be talking more beer, how they started, how you could start. Sean and Nico from 21st Amendment. Awesome beer, fresh beer. Um, it's obviously something I'm fairly passionate about in a good way.
You're listening to Rob Black and Your Money on AM 1220 KDOW. Welcome in. Rob Black and your money. It's time to talk to a reporter from Newsweek, Stav Ziv. I think the only person I know with two one-syllable names. How are you, Stav? <laughs> Hi, good. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. And uh, local girl, Stanford College graduate, so it's always good to talk to one of the, the natives, so to speak. Uh, yeah. tell, tell us a little bit about your background as a reporter for Newsweek. I always like getting what you do and what your story is. Sure. Um, I've been at Newsweek for a little over a year, and I'm a, a general assignment, so I cover just about everything. Um, could be arts, could be NASA, as we're going to chat about today, or um, breaking news, anything anything you might uh, think of. Now, I think every parent who's driving their kids around right now want their kid to go to Stanford. It's a great university, great graduates. Um, it's got a prestigious name. It's got you know founders that are uh, they've got students that own companies. Uh, how did you go about finding your way into Stanford? Um, I, you know, it's the admission process is such a, um, you know, you never know what you're going to get. Um, but Stanford is obviously an amazing school. And um, I had been born in the area and, and thought it would be incredible to go back uh, and, and go to school there. And, um, you know, they accepted me for some reason. So um, it was sort of a no-brainer once that, once that happened. I was talking to a Stanford graduate because um, I've got friends who work at Stanford and I, you know, stop by the MBA all the time. And uh, they go, it's, it's, it's impossible to get into now, but 10 years ago it was a little easier. 20 years ago it was a lot easier. Uh, so the fact that you got in tells me that you did something special as a high school student. Is that fair? Um, sure. I, I, um, I lived in a different country, so I think that certainly helped and, and, um, was in an arts high school. So I think, you know, they're always looking for, for people who've done a little bit of something different. Um, but you know, it was a lot easier to get in when I got in than it is now. It's pretty crazy. So you just did a piece on how crazy it is. Um, and it, it really stands out And the graphic that Newsweek put together was, I think, inspiring, um, talking about the admission rates for, the number of people trying to become an astronaut and the number of people trying to become a Stanford student. <laughs> Which is tougher? So it's way tougher, it turns out, to become an astronaut. Um, we, we thought those two numbers were just striking, especially because of how much you know, people are, are talking about in the last several years, just how much harder and harder it is uh, to get into some of the most competitive colleges and universities. Um, but... Um, Stanford in, for the class of 2018, the admission rate was 5.07%, which is so incredibly low. And then, um, we looked at the number, the, the admit rate, so to speak, for astronauts recruited last time around, and it was 0.13%, which is just sort of striking. So how much, how did you get into the whole NASA statics business? Or let's try that again. How did you get into the whole NASA statistics business? Uh, well, I, I cover NASA often, okay. uh, and uh, they, they uh, had recently, in the beginning of November, put out a call for astronauts. And, and there was a little bit of mention of, you know, what happened last time around, and it seemed interesting. So I, I did a little bit of digging, and uh, it turns out that out of more than – 6,000 applicants, they selected just eight astronauts, uh, and I thought that was incredible. So tell me a little bit about NASA. That's kind of a fascinating conversation. Yeah, so, um, I mean, they obviously are doing, um, you know, a lot of work in different fields, but the the sort of astronaut um, realm, you know, they, they're, every few years, they're, they're recruiting new people, and, um, you know, I think a lot of people think about being an astronaut as, as sort of a, an unrealistic thing, and it's obviously very hard, but, but they're, they're asking for people to apply now. Um, starting uh, in about a week, people can, can go online and start applying. Having worked on NASA stories, have you got to know any of the astronauts themselves, any of them contribute to your work? 
Um, I haven't had a chance to, to personally speak with, with um, many astronauts, but uh, the great thing is that now um, with Twitter and Instagram, um, a lot of the astronauts are actually tweeting pictures that they're taking from space. So you can sort of follow along their you know, their journeys, you know, if they're spending six months at the ISS or, or, or whatnot, um, they'll be tweeting every day. And, and some of them are uh, making music videos. Uh, a few, you know, uh, a while back, uh, Chris Hadfield made a, a space oddity cover uh, while he was at the ISS and then recently just uh, put out a whole album of music that he recorded up there. So you can kind of follow along even if, even if you're not sort of in personal contact with them. Yeah, a lot of Twitter accounts, some of them you get and some of them you just don't get, but astronauts I get. And I'm not an eight-year-old boy, but if I were an eight-year-old boy, I would be all about following uh, astronauts and what they're doing up in space stations. Um, yeah, and actually, I mean, even if even if you're older, it's not something that I you know would necessarily have expected. But um, some of the images that they're tweeting are they they look like art. They're you know images of deserts and waters, and um, it's it's pretty cool. Even even if you're not an eight year old boy. Well, I'm I'm not limiting myself to not liking them. I'm just saying the inner child in me. I mean, every kid at one point in time, I'm sure you're the same, uh, had a desire to go up to space and be that, you know, the girl to walk on the moon or the, the guy to yeah. uh, uh, do a, a journey out to space and such. But um, it does capture our imaginations for sure. Anything else that you can add to the story or uh, anything, any other color you want to throw on NASA? Because I think we all are interested in NASA. Are they being well-funded? Are they? Or are we going to Mars anytime soon? Uh, I mean, that's Mars is their plan. They, they certainly have their eye on Mars, and they're um, doing work now to sort of get ready for what they say, you know, will be, um, you know, much further exploration to Mars in the next, you know, 10, 20, 30 years. Um, they're, they're talking about putting humans on Earth, I'm sorry, humans on Mars um, in not, not really that long from now. So um, I think it's definitely something to keep an eye on. Thanks for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you. Star Zivs, reporter with Newsweek. You can find her at Newsweek.com. She has her own website out there as well. If you want to uh, peruse what she's doing and how she's doing it, uh, Star Ziv, she's an assignment reporter for Newsweek. I think we're all kind of fascinated with NASA. Um, a lot of people don't know this, but NASA invents a lot of things that ultimately we use. It's a lot like auto racing. You may you may go, I have no care about NASCAR, but you actually do because like there's crumple zones that save your life in a car crash. NASCAR is the groups that are like doing crazy amounts of work on uh technology that eventually comes into our life like um i believe it's true and this could just be a, one of those urban myths but i believe that nasa came up with the digital watch because regular <clears throat> watches and clocks didn't work in space because of gravity issues so they had to come up with an alternative and clearly you've seen a lot of things come out of digital watch applications i'm sure 800-516-1220 to get your calls on the air it's 800-516-1220 to get your calls on the air that was star ziv with newsweek I'm Rob Black, talking all things financial money, investing, and more. Getting your kid into Stanford should be a dream of yours, and that's one of the reasons I did that story. I think we, as a society, owe it to our children to get them college-educated and not college-educated where they just get that four-year degree in drinking beer. Nothing wrong with drinking beer, but you don't want that four-year degree in drinking beer. You want that four-year degree in engineering, and they figure out new ways to open bottles of beer. Um, or to build a bigger bottle of beer or something along those lines. Um, but Stanford, I live really close to Stanford, and every time I go on that campus, it, it it's a wow thing. I'm impressed with the students. I'm impressed with the faculty. I'm impressed with the, the buildings. Um, they do a really, really nice job um, as far as campuses go and uh, university programs. And, again, they're, they're kids that graduate get jobs, and I'm talking good jobs. And as like I said, society, we want our kids to get good jobs for selfish reasons, to create more revenue, to create more taxes. But we also want our kids to get jobs to uh, obviously get some life experiences and uh, add to their own society benefits, if you know what I'm saying. 800-516-1220 to get your calls on the air. It's 800-516-1220 to get your calls on the air. It's a big day for the markets. In large part, we've got um, the jobs report and... I don't know. What can you say about the jobs report? It was pretty darn good. And with that being said, 
people have jobs and the Federal Reserve can go, you know, if people have jobs, they're probably going to spend their paycheck. And if people spend their paycheck, it's probably going to help the economy. So stocks leapt on this news today. Dow, it's 250 points after the jobs report. It's interesting because tomorrow, the stock market, well, not tomorrow because tomorrow is Saturday, but tomorrow, Monday, the market could go down thinking, okay, higher interest rates means higher cost of borrowing, which means some people won't have as much money. Uh, real estate will stop, you know, uh, chug, chug, chugging. It could still power higher, but not as easily. Um, so you saw the markets react to that pretty positively. Um, oil, under $40 a barrel, 10-year treasury, sits at 2.3%. In a perfect world, if I had a perfect world, the 10-year treasury would probably go somewhere between 3 and 5%. And when it was at 5%, it'd be more of a bond buyer. When it was at 3%, I'd be more of a stock buyer. Um, so under 3 I'm clearly buying stocks. Um, and I've made no secret of that for eight-plus years. Um, I've made no secret of what I do in the financial markets for 16, 17, 18 years now. Um, so you always know what's on my mind. I'm Rob Black, talking all things financial, money, investing, and more. Don't be shy. 800-516-1220. It's 800-516-1220 to get your calls on the air. You're listening to Rob Black and Your Money on AM 1220 KDOW and iHeart Radio Station. Welcome back in. I'm not embellishing just to be dramatic. I've told myself once, I've told myself a million times not to be dramatic um, or to exaggerate. But beer's been a big part of civilizations. And when you hear that, you're like, that's cute. You know, Babylonians, Assyrians, Egyptians, Hebrews. Chinese, Incans, um, all sorts of cultures did it in different ways. Some used corn, some used wheat. This is stuff that just blows me away. But part of civilization, I, I kind of want to make this point because this is there's an investment here. There's a dying investment in the old brewers. I'm speaking with Sean and Nico from 21st Amendment uh, Brewery in the Bay Area, where I was enjoying your product for many, many, many years. And um, I made a, I didn't make a switch. I just I've always liked the craft beer, and then it got even more diverse. Like, it, for a little while, it was just, what was I drinking? Um, uh, the one in, started in California. We've already mentioned the name. Ballast Point? No, 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 no. Um, started in L.A. We are talking, Anchor Steam. Yeah. Oh, yeah. San Francisco. San Francisco. That's San Francisco. San Francisco. So, for a while, Sierra Nevada and Anchor Steam were the craft beers. Yep. Those are the two main ones. Out and in the last 10 years, it's been, there's now 200 of them, and you can't keep up with them. But it's good for the, the customer. Yeah, it really is. I mean, you know, you've got like, and there's a lot happening right now. I mean, you've got two breweries a day opening up right now. You okay. know, um, what is it that Frank Zappa once said? You're not a real country unless you have a an airline or, or a brewery. Um, uh, so, you know, all those, all the civilizations that you met, uh, all kind of started where we are today, where we ended up today. Um, I think that. Um, you know, more and more breweries are going to be opening up. There's a, that's a little concerning, actually, for us in the brewing industry is that we compete, like you mentioned earlier, about, um, uh, you know, shelf space. Um, you know, you know who, how, are we going to, how are we going to maintain that? You know, where is this thing going? Um, the, uh, you know, the, the idea that uh, uh, with those breweries opening up right now, that the, cause my main concern is quality, actually. Where are we, how are we going to maintain quality as these smaller breweries start coming online? Are we going to turn customers off? Um, where is this thing going to go? That's, uh, you know, that's, if I could look in a crystal ball, that's what I'm like looking at right now. Let's talk about your founder. I'm talking about the founder, so let's talk the founding story. How did you guys meet and why was there a click and what's the story? Sean and I got to be friends 20 years ago this summer. We met at UC Davis short course in brewing over the summer of 1995. Um, I had moved up from L.A. Uh, earlier the year before, and Sean had as well, both called by beer. And um, I was uh, a home brewer that was trying to get into the brewing business. I had gotten a job working for the Celebrator Beer News, which at the time was based right here out of Hayward. It's the West Coast Beer Newspaper, and I was the Bay Area correspondent. So uh, they were good enough to send me to the UC Davis course um, to write a story about the about the course. And also, you know, I wanted to make beer and 
Sean and I, the first day of class, it was a lab class, and the professor, Tom Young from uh, Birmingham, England, had this heavy English accent, which I won't attempt to do here because it's terrible, <laughs> said, you need, you need to pick a lab partner for the week. And Sean and I were sitting next to each other. We had just been chatting. We are like, you need partners? Sure. And literally, we were like a couple of uh, junior high kids, you know, shooting spitballs at the teacher and passing notes all week, and we got to be friends. And one day, Sean said... Yeah, I invited Nico out to the brew pub I was working at, Triple Rock in Berkeley, and invited him to come brew with me. And, uh, and what what does a guest brewer do uh, when you're brewing? Uh, cleaning the mash tun out, pulling the grain out of the tank. And I said, hey, what are you doing with the rest of your life? And I said, I want to open a brewery. And he said, I do too. And so uh, he said, well, you're you're already the brewer. Um, so I was relegated to that task because I'd been home brewing and I'm brewing professionally. And Nico had uh, been a graduate of Northwestern in Chicago as a theater major and was living in Los Angeles. And so he um, had a lot of opportunities to run a restaurant while I was trying to become an actor and work as a waiter. <laughs> and so uh, he took on the task of... Uh, of being the uh, of being the restaurant tour, the front of the house guy. And I said, but Sean, what about the money? How are we going to get the money? And Sean, who had been a uh, yeah. paralegal. Yeah, I'd worked in Southern California in my previous world, uh, this Skadden Arps law firm in Los Angeles, and, I, and I'd been around a lot of M&A transactions at the time, versions and acquisitions, and seen lots of money, you know, billions of dollars going back and forth. And I looked at Nico and I said, ah, the money is not going to be a problem at all. There's a, so much money out there. Not a problem at all. And I got sucked into this Sully, I call it Sully Land now, this little tractor beam, and uh, it was a little Jedi mind trick, and I went, okay, the money's not going to be a problem. That was that was the fall of 1995, so we said, let's do this, and we set out to write a business plan that, you know, you didn't have access to um, business plan templates on the internet back right. then, so we had to do all the research with the National Restaurant Association and the Brewers Association and putting the numbers together and coming up with the concept and the name and, and um, a, a place and all of those good things. And from the time we t first talked about it to the time we opened was just about five years. And it turned out the money was the hardest part. The hardest part. thing we had ever done in our yeah. lives. Yeah. And just going back to the business plan, and I was a financial guy, I started a company and grew it to $200, $300 million under management. And uh, I still have that business plan, and none of, it's, none of it ever worked. <laughs> so <laughs> none of it. Maybe show up to work was like the only thing that I ever did. But now, now how's the money? Because there seems to be big money being thrown around. Um, Ballast Point just got acquired. Lagunitas um, has been um, partially acquired. Uh, there's a lot of money there. there there's around. yeah. I mean, there's uh, everybody from strategic partners, and by that we mean the uh, other brewers, Anheuser Busch's, Miller Coors, um, Duval Mortgat, which is a big Belgian brewery, which bought um, Firestone Walker and Boulevard, and they own Oma Gang out in New York. Uh, a big Spanish brewer called Mao has a, a stake founders in Grand Rapids, Michigan. So there's those players, and then there's private equity, which are people that just want to get into this growing consumer product goods business. Um, and so there's all kinds of people. There's like all you know sharks circling the water in all directions now, but. It's all about – these are mostly the top 50 largest brewers. Um, they have scale. They have a regional presence. They have uh, good, strong bottom lines, uh, good, strong revenue, and good growth. And every situation is different. I mean, Constellation was willing to pay the money they paid for Ballast Point for a lot of reasons that other strategic buyers might never have paid that much. So um, there's some money in it, but um, a lot of people that got into this got into it to – you know, to stay small, to do craft. We've been growing a lot, so we're expanding, and it, frankly, it gets harder to compete. I mean, you've got a lot of very well-capitalized players out there, and it's always been an incestuous business that we talked about earlier where everybody's been very supportive and helpful, and that's still very much the case, but there's a lot of underlying competition now that wasn't there even five years ago, and a lot of that is because there's a squeeze on the shelf. There's too many SKUs out there. There's not enough shelf space. Not everybody can compete, and the battleground is in the chains and in the bigger grocery stores, and uh, and so the bigger players are just better positioned to to have success there. Let's talk a little bit about that. How did you break into? Because we got a brewer and we got a restaurant guy between the two of you. That's the basics. How do you break into a Safeway or there's a Lenardi's right next to me? Um, Lenardi's seems like it would be easier because it's smaller amount of chains, but the Safeway seems like it'd be more lucrative. And you're in both, so you've done it. You've done both the regional and kind of. Is it national distribution you're doing now? No, we're in about 24 states, okay. um, mostly West Coast and East Coast, kind okay. of split between the two. And, you know, when we started, we kind of, frankly, we hit the wave right. We were thinking about how to grow the business in the mid-2000s. 
and we came up with this concept of uh, putting beer into cans, which wasn't really being done in California at that time. Yep. So it was sort of our unique market positioning. And uh, anyway, we got into packaging around 2008, which is when growth started going from about 6% a year in the industry to 11, 12, 15, and so on. So we kind of cut the wave right at the beginning. And back in those days, you could go to your local Safeways and you could get the buyers for the local store. You say, hey, we're a local brewery in San Francisco. Would you carry us in your local stores? And they would bring you into, the, for instance, the San Francisco stores. And once you've got data from those stores, then headquarters starts taking a look at it. And you, it's easier to get a meeting with them and get them to put you in a wider range. With So with a Safeway, it's tougher because they're generally controlled by the corporate headquarters out here in Pleasanton. Everything goes through them, although they will bring you into local stores. And they have different types of stores. Some are, um, you know, have more range of craft beers because of the neighborhoods they're in than others, for instance. Lunardi's, Andronico's, Molly Stone's, things like that are a little bit easier because they're smaller chains, so you can get to a buyer a little bit better. But it's getting harder. If you open a brewery tomorrow, you might have great success locally with draft, um, you know, local bars always want to carry yeah, sure. beer, and you might have success with bottles or cans in your local independent markets, but it's just going to get harder and harder to get into the big chains where the volume happens because there's just not enough uh, shelf space and there's too much competition. And as I said earlier, it's all controlled by the big guys. I mean, the employees of Anheuser-Busch are actually stocking the shelves and doing the diagrams for where everything goes on the shelf, even the craft beer. So they can put craft beer, you know, down in the gutter if they want. Um, and the supermarkets are pushing back on that now, as I said earlier, because of the margin. But it's, uh, it's an interesting long history. Watch a movie from a few years ago called Beer Wars. <laughs> What's Beer Wars all about? Uh, Beer Wars was a movie that came out and documented uh, the craft beer industry at the time. Sure. And essentially it was you know, uh, following a brewery that was trying to come to market um, and the success and hiccups they had with that and competing with the big breweries in terms of shelf space and how you go about doing that. Like Nico said, I mean, you know, w- with the larger breweries, I mean, they really do gobble up attention of the larger chain store buyers, and that, you know, that's what you're competing against. I find it still hard to believe that Anheuser-Busch has, you said, like 90% of the market? About um, oh, all the big brewers and imports together are about 90%. No one from the age of 20 to 45 that I know of will buy that product. So I don't see how they're doing it. I well, guess it's guess it's a lot of people go in Kansas. to yeah go to Kansas, <laughs> and, and I think a lot of the younger the millennials that are drinking craft beer, craft beer is more expensive. Okay. So people, uh, from what we see, they tend to buy a six pack of craft beer and a suitcase of Coors Light. Gotcha. And the craft beer is their first couple beers to get the flavor, and then the rest is maintenance beer. I call it maintenance beer because you're just maintaining your buzz by you know hammering back to good stuff. We got one more segment coming up. I'm looking forward to it with Sean and Sol- uh, Sean and Sullivan and Nico Freak. I know I butchered that, but uh, talking 21st Amendment, a uh, big event coming up tomorrow in San Leandro. We'll plug that one more time, but also I want to get in the mind of the brewer next. I'm Rob Black talking all things financial and beer today. You're listening to Rob Black and Your Money on AM 1220 KDOW. Thanks for indulging me today. I'm speaking a lot of beer with Sean and Nico from 21st Amendment. I first ran into their business um, at a Giants game. Uh, you have a choice of an Irish bar across the street or 21st Amendment, and I'm like, we're doing the fresh beer. Uh, and there's no ifs, ands, buts, or whats. And it's really a lifestyle now at this point in time. I know that I can stop in almost any brew pub. In America, and it's going to be fresh beer, mm-hmm. um, especially if they got the big vats there. I get kind of excited. Um, and first, something you can't get anywhere else in the world. That's the beauty. They'll have six or eight beers that are only available there. Right. Um, and that, that works out pretty well. Um, you have to have a little bit of an adventurous palate, would you say? Yeah. To be a, a craft beer lover. I don't know about that. I think there's a like great thing about brew pubs are that they kind of give you a spectrum of beer flavors. So there's always that kind of entry level beer that's available. So if you're like that, you know, you're with that craft beer geek and you're not that craft beer geek. Um, And there's always an opportunity for you to have a lighter beer like a Kolsch or, you know, uh, 
a blonde beer, uh, which is sort of more like those larger mass-produced beers, like from Budweiser or Coors, and so it's a, kind of an entry level. We have a great beer called Hell or High Watermelon Wheat Beer, which is our uh, summer seasonal. Uh, it's this huge phenomenon. This beer is amazing, uh, where we actually brew a wheat beer and then add uh, fresh watermelon juice, and it ferments out. So it's just the essence of watermelon. But a lot of a lot of first-time uh, beer drinkers, they're just pulled into this thing. It's like a, it's like the vortex of craft beer, and uh, uh, so you have those opportunities out there. And that's a great thing about the the brew pub. You might have something light, but you also have something for the beer drinker who's really into it, like a you know. Belgian or Belgian beers or barley wines, really strong, full-flavored beers. So that's the great experience about uh, trying it at those venues. One of my friends, obviously a beer drinker, goes, "Yeah, Belgian beers are nice, but uh, I I prefer Czech beers for crispness." I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> like that's that's the only something that comes out of the mouth of a not an alcoholic, but a guy who enjoys a beer or two and has been around the block. Yeah. So let's stay with you real quick, Sean. You're the the brew master. If you the rock star, the rock oh, star, Jesus, well, please, sir. <laughs> What's going on in your head right now? Are you thinking about next season? Are you going, hmm, I just passed a watermelon patch or a pumpkin patch? I'm uh, thinking about the next words that are going to come out of your mouth. No, I'm, uh, I, I, I think, uh, I spent a lot of time thinking about like, well, what, what would, what do I, what do I want to brew? Okay. And also think about, well, what will you drink? You know, what will interest you? I mean, we've just picked up uh, 14 punchins, which are large oak barrels that were formerly used in a winery. And uh, we're starting to fill those up. And we've never had a barrel program before. And barrel beers, barrel-aged beers and barrel-fermented beers are hugely popular right now. So thinking about what we're going to put in there, we're going to add fruit to them. We're going to add, you know, different types of yeast to elicit, you know, sour and you know, flavors that are described as horse blanket that are – these Belgian-style beers are really popular right now. So – that, that's kind of what I'm thinking about. Uh, I, do, I still homebrew. You know, we have a beer called Toaster Pastry that is an homage to the Kellogg's plant that we're in right now. Um, it's uh, essentially uh, the idea is that, well, at Kellogg's, they used to make Pop-Tarts and cereals and all those things. We grew up as kids, so we wanted to create a beer that was essentially the direction was the, the idea that you're drinking a Pop-Tart or biting into a Pop-Tart. So we'll have, uh, I used a lot of biscuit malts and toasted pale malts that created like that crust-like experience as well as a lot of like uh, hoppy uh, hops on the back end that kind of give you that jammy raspberry experience. And it's got this amazing red hue. So that was a beer that started off as batches in my house a year, two years ago. Uh, the idea that one day we we're going to put it in a 19.2 ounce can and sell it. And uh, so it's it's a lot of fun. I mean, it's like I, I consider craft brewing kind of the the merging of science and cooking. And I love to cook, and you know, and I know what the materials will do, the ingredients will do, and uh, th- that's the thing that gets me up every morning. How much science is there for you? Because I don't think you have, I don't think you went to Berkeley and got a degree in bioengineering, which you would probably help at this point in time. You know, I, I actually, I, I graduated from UCLA. I went in as a poli sci major and left as a psychology major. I've worked at CNN. I worked as a photographer, as a photojournalist, and also okay. as a paralegal. So um, the, the science is really important because there's certain chemical reactions um, and physical reactions that happen in the brewing process, and you have to attend to those. And the way you manipulate those and also all your ingredients um, you end up with different types of flavors in your beer. So you have to, you have to attend to it uh, wholeheartedly. And you are a bit of a rock star. Jeez. Um, <laughs> oh, no, uh, sure. Like, well, like, I can't believe I'm sitting here talking to the guy who came up with Brew Free or Die IPA. Yeah. Like, well, I, I've well, been drinking that for years. Well, I'm an IPA guy. Yeah, I, I am too. Um, cheers. Uh, I, I think that that's what's great about this is that you is that brewers uh, we are creating things that have never been created before okay. you know new flavors new beers we're creating new companies um, and with when that happens you have people who are fans of that and I, I mean I think it's incredible I'm, I'm flattered that you call me a rock star I just think of myself as a you know a humble man who's brewing beer and you know trying to just you know make it right every day I mean and it's the other thing we I think about quality every step of the way at our brewery how can we make it better how can we package the beer better how can we keep oxygen out of the beer that's those types of things that that are important to me because I want you to have a great experience when you crack open that you know the, the medals and the accolades and being on the radio and interviews that you know both Nico and I do as well um, you know that's part of the fun but that's not what kind of drives the the passion in a lot of ways that's that's uh, window dressing in a lot of ways can you tell me what a beer key is because I've heard they're making a comeback 
a beer key. Well, a beer key was a device back in the day when canned beers didn't have pull-off tabs. Right. And essentially what you do is you would have to pierce the can uh, in order to, you'd vent it on one side and then you'd open it up on the other side. And that's, and that's how you would open your beer back, you know, when my grandfather was drinking beer. It, will it make a comeback? Because it's kind of nostalgic. Well, there's, I think there's a company out there actually called Church Key that Church Key. Uh, was um, brewing, that was that was doing that. The, you know, you actually get a six pack with a beer key in it, um, and uh, you know, maybe it will come back. I don't know. It's not like the nostalgic angle, but um, we've got about a minute. Nico, do you want to plug the event for tomorrow? Yes, uh, Repeal Day Party, 21st Amendment, 2010 William Street in San Leandro. It starts at noon. It's a free event. It's a family-friendly event. We've got a kid's zone. We've got, of course, beer. We've got food truck. We've got our own food. We've got a casino for charity benefiting the Davis Street uh, Family Resource Foundation in San Leandro. We have a VIP cigar lounge. A lot of fun. Free BART shuttle all day, noon to 6. Come on down. Thanks very much for joining me today. Thank you. A lot of fun talking 21st Amendment. Um, again, it is a growing trend, and if you don't see it as an investment angle, you're missing something. Sean and Nico from 21st Amendment, thanks for being here. The views and opinions expressed by Rob Black and his guests are not necessarily those of the Wall Street Business Network, this station, its management, owners, or advertisers, and should not be construed as legal, tax, or investment advice. Always consult with the appropriate advisor before making any investment or financial planning decision. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.